Thank you. That's a great song, isn't it? It's kind of, I don't know what, what it's like for you, but I kind of struggle to get through it without, you know, having a couple of the words come out a little bit. Um, I'm going to talk about death. That's probably <laughs> helped the kids to move out a little bit more quickly, isn't it? I want to talk about death this morning, just for a minute. Shelley and I went to a funeral last, last Monday, and Pete and Beck were there too, and it was the funeral of the mum of a really, really close friend of ours. Service was at the, at the Catholic Church down at the entrance, and it really was a, like a beautiful service, a really honouring tribute. And of course, funerals are all sorts of things, aren't they? Like funerals, funerals are sad. Funerals are tragic. Sometimes they're funny. Sometimes they're hopeful. But they're always important. And they're important because a funeral is one of those places where we just come face to face with our, with our humanity. We come face to face with, with those big and difficult questions about, well, what is it that comes next? And in a culture that, that seems to, uh, to, to sanitise death or seems to want to avoid the topic altogether or sometimes even wants to glamorise death, there's no dodging the reality of it when you're looking at a casket at the front of the sanctuary or maybe even more so when the thing is being lowered into the ground. The deacon who led the service last Monday, he did a great job of speaking biblical truth. It was good. And then at the same time, I was just struck by how many, how many huge assumptions we make about people's understanding of what, what even was going on. What were we trying to communicate in that moment? He was doing all kinds of strange things with, with water and with incense and I, and I get it and I actually think that the symbolism is powerful and I think it's beautiful. But for many people it was totally disconnected from their own understanding or for their own processing of what was going on that day. And this is not a critique of the service. It's just an observation about our culture and about the age that we're in. Because in that very full sanctuary, statistically speaking, there was an ever-shrinking proportion of, of people who had any real grasp of our Christian belief about life and about death and about life after death. Back in 2017, McCrindle Research released their Faith and Belief in Australia Report And in that report, it revealed that 8% of all Australians do not know any Christians. And that was back in 2017. 18% of Aussies confess that they know nothing at all about Christianity. 28% know, know little to, to nothing about the life of Jesus. And one in, 29, one in 29 people have never even heard his name. And so one in five people probably in that sanctuary had no real concept of why we were even conducting a funeral in a church. 
the connection between the death of their, their beloved friend, the death of their beloved relative and the place in which we were remembering her and all the words that were being said, that connection was missing. And that church sanctuary was full on Monday and it was a beautiful ceremony but I cannot help but think that for many of those people there was simply no relationship between the casket at the front and the finished work of Jesus. For a significant and a growing portion of our population, it's just a strange old ceremony. It's partly beautiful, it's partly repulsive, and it's mostly weird. It's quite disassociated from this central abiding belief of Christians that death is not the end. Where are we? Karen, sorry. On the PowerPoint. There we go. Look at that. Death is not the end. Of the story, of course, there is this huge variety between um, across the church in terms of what is believed about these things. But as believers, we all do hold on to this: that in in human history, Jesus the Christ overcame the ultimate obstacle of death, so that we might join him in the age to come. We believe that death is not the end of our story. Today we start off in John 17. So we've worked all the way through John's Gospel up to this point. These are the hours before Jesus' own death. Your Bible, when you open up to John 17, it might actually say at the top, um, the high priestly prayer. Many would actually assert that this is the Lord's Prayer. This is the prayer that Jesus, our Lord, prays to his Father rather than the prayer that he taught us to pray. And so this scene is right before his arrest. The hour has come. And what we see in John 17 is Jesus at his most intense. He's at his most passionate and he's certainly at his most vulnerable. He knows what's waiting for him. He knows that it's all coming down to this, that his entire mission is culminating in these coming hours. In Luke's telling of it, in Luke chapter 22, he describes Jesus as being in agony. He, agony. he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And so whatever it is that the son is crying out to his father at this moment, it matters. Somehow John is, is eavesdropping on Jesus' prayer. And it's like Jesus, of course, means for them to hear. So he's still teaching, but it's this teaching in the form of his most passionate of prayers that's going to be our focus for the next three weeks. And to me, Jesus' prayer in John 17, in my mind, in my heart, this is the pinnacle of Scripture. This is Jesus at his most raw and passionate. This is like holy ground. And so I've got to say that it's with fear and trepidation and anxiety and probably arrogance that I would think that I can bring anything to this passage. What you're going to see over the next three weeks or what will become clear is this overarching 
theme of Jesus' prayer. In this moment, before he's arrested, when he's crying out to his father, there's one thing that he's asking for. And he's asking for unity, for oneness. And this is where he starts his prayer, with this ultimate oneness between father and son. And this morning, we are just looking at the opening five verses. You will remember um, in our last couple of weeks in John 16, Jesus has been speaking to his disciples. He's been saying, I'm going to be leaving you soon. He's predicting his own death. He's saying, persecution is going to be coming your way. And he is saying, fear not, because I'm going to send the helper, the advocate, the alongsider. And then right before he prays, Jesus says these words at the end of John 16. He said, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble. You will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. And he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And this is one of those funny Christian words, isn't it? Glory, glorify. It's kind of like faith and mercy. We have to do a little bit of work and press in to figure out what these things mean. So what what is this mutual glorifying between Father and and son. Well, the word for glorify is doxazo. It comes from the Greek word doxo, which means light. It means splendor. It means shiny and sparkly and brilliant. You remember that, that Jesus says in John 8, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so doxazo, to glorify, is to illuminate. It is to magnify, to praise. It is to call attention to true worth and dignity and and beauty and honour. And so this mutual giving and receiving of glory between father and son is simply a true recognition of the infinite splendour of the other. And you could call it love between father and son. Father George Maloney writes, he says, he says, this glorification of Jesus by the Father and of the Father and of this glorification of Jesus by the Father and of the Father by him has to be seen in John's gospel as the summary of John's teaching about God as a Trinitarian community of love. To illuminate, to magnify and glorify the other is the basic relational dynamic of the Trinity. And we've spoken about this a bit over this last little while. And the word for this mutual glorification and honour is perichoresis. You might remember that. 
Glory, praise, exaltation is something that the Father gives and receives from the Son and from the Spirit from all eternity. It is the inner relational dynamic of love. And this is why for us to honour, to glorify, to love one another is the ultimate commandment because it resembles the inner life of God himself. God does not want praise, does not want glory because he's egotistical and needy. That's us putting a, a, a broken human trait on God. Rather, the giving and receiving of glory is simply the normal relational dynamic of the triune life. The divine dance, some call it. So if you're not already confused, stick with me. Because to receive glory is the return loop of kenosis. To receive glory is the return loop of kenosis. Kenosis, you might remember, is this self-giving, self-emptying love, pouring oneself out for the other. This is the kind of love that we see in the New Testament referred to as agape love. Agape love is kenotic. It is self-emptying love for the other. And kenosis is not a peripheral idea. It's not just some interesting, maybe interesting thing that Jeff is saying that I can park and leave. Kenosis is essential to the character of God. God is essentially kenotic, essentially self-emptying. Self-emptying is normal for God. When we read this in John 3.16, for God so loved, for God so agaped the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God is operating out of this inexhaustible, outward-focused love for all of creation. And so he pours out his own self, giving his only son. And for this kenosis, God will receive glory. Glory is the return loop. Of kenosis. And so this, this is this inner relational order of God, the self poured out in love for the other, only to already be filled and overflowing by the love received from them. And on and on and on it goes. Kenosis, doxazo. Kenosis, doxazo. Empty, full. Empty, full. Night, day, in. Out, death, resurrection. Although we'd love it to be this way, the relational rhythm of God is not fill, fill, fill. And it's also not empty, empty, empty. The relational rhythm of God is kenosis, doxazo, empty, and so if this is the relational rhythm within the life of creator, then you can bet that it is the intended and it is the ultimate rhythm of all of creation. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. Look, look at this very familiar passage through this lens of um, kenosis and, and glory. Philippians 2, 5 to 11. This is where we get the word kenosis from. Have this mind, um, this, this worldview among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, who, because he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied 
himself. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I glorified you on earth, Jesus says, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I think that for too long that the Western Protestant, probably evangelical church has been led to believe and has perpetuated the story that Jesus' primary role in human history was to receive punishment from the Father on behalf of humanity and that the full efficacy of Jesus' mission on earth was in his death, in his substitutionary death. And that somehow this brutal act of punishment on the cross that it brings, that it restores um, glory to the Father as some sort of justice, as some sort of restitution or satisfaction. This is penal substitutionary atonement. You might have heard it. And, And it has certainly been the most popular atonement theory in our little tributary of faith. And I can absolutely see where it comes from. But what we see on the cross, though, is not a one-off in that it's not an uncharacteristic act. It's not demand for payment so that the Father extrinsically receives some glory that is due to him. Rather, the cross reveals the utterly normal, canonic character of God. This is what he is like. Because he is God, Christ empties himself. In his own son, God avails himself to the brutality of his own creation so that he might declare forgiveness for our rebellion and restore humanity into the Trinitarian community of love. See, the father was never without glory. Sin did not diminish the glory of God. Sin diminished the glory of creation. Sin separated humanity from the divine life. And this is what Christ comes to restore. And he does not do it through retributive punishment or penalty or violence. He does it by becoming one of us. By becoming one with us. By assuming human flesh. And in the the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of God the Son... Human flesh is now glorified. In Christ, humanity is now in the presence of God, participating in the glory that the Son has had with the Father since before the world began. God has not been paid off. He has not been satiated or appeased in order to restore his glory. It was never lost. Rather now, because God has bonded himself to humanity in the Son, the word made flesh, humanity will now share in the doxa, in the Shekinah glory, the light, the splendour of the Trinitarian community of love, the fullness of life itself. Father, the hour has come. 
glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. He has authority over all flesh. The son of man, the created God in human flesh. This is where he has his authority comes from. God is one of us. This authority to, to give eternal life has been given to the Son so that the Son might extend it to all whom has been given to him. We read back in John chapter 5 in, in verse 26. The Father has life in himself and he has granted that same life-giving power to his Son and he has given him authority to judge. He has given him the authority to decide for everyone because he is the Son of Man, because he is both God and flesh. The authority that Jesus wields is to give eternal life. And this authority extends to all flesh, to everyone. It is Jesus who decides and he decides. He decides for everyone. Even though we choose rebellion, which leads to death, Jesus is the judge. His word is the final word. Jesus has final authority to give life and to give it to everyone the Father has given him. And who does this include, just in case you missed it? Back in John chapter 3, the Father loves the Son and has put everything in his hands. Matthew remembers it the same way. This is Jesus speaking in Matthew 11. My Father has entrusted everything to me. All things, the ESV says. Jesus has the authority to have the last word over everything, even overruling our own judgment, it seems. You might remember this from, from a few weeks ago. This was the scene in the Last Supper, and this is Jesus saying, saying, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep, keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. I've come as light. I've come as glory into all creation, not to judge creation, but to save it, to bring it into light, to bring it all into his glory. And even when we judge him, even if we reject him, ours is not the judgment that will ultimately prevail. God's word, the word that is already spoken, will be the final judge. The son in the full authority of the father has the final word and that word is in full obedience to the father's command and that command is life. The father's command is eternal life. What is this? What is eternal life? It's a very good question. Jesus answers it for us. This is eternal life. That they know you. 
the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life. Let's go back to the casket at the front of the sanctuary. Christians do believe a whole bunch of weird things. And this is maybe one of the weirdest, one of the biggest. We believe that death is not the end of our story. Just think about that for a minute. Part of the reason that you're here probably is because you believe this too. Or that you really, really hope that it's true. Life after death. A good life. Paradise, everlasting, eternal. Many translations will render the word aeonios as eternal, but it's actually a pretty dubious translation. And, and we've come to kind of understand it in our vernacular as just some like unending chronological time, um, which isn't necessarily right and it's certainly not particularly helpful and it's probably not the way first century Jews or Greeks even understood it. A more faithful translation of aeonios is life in the age or of the ages. David Bentley Hart translates verse 3 like this. He writes, And this is life in the age, that they might know you, the sole true God and him whom you sent, Jesus the anointed. Eternal life or life in the age is another way of expressing this, this Christian idea of salvation. It is the new order of things that we are grafted into. It is a new life, a new age, a new and a greater and an ultimate reality. It is the kingdom of God. And this new life consists in knowing the Father and the Son. And Jesus pleads to his Father that they might know you. And the word is gnosko. It is this deep abiding inner knowledge. It's the knowledge that comes from the gut, not just from the head. It is a fundamentally relational and interpersonal knowing, not just a, not just a, a rational idea. This is as Adam knew Eve. It is intimate and joined. It is interpenetrating knowledge. Sorry about that, but you get the idea. This is life in the age. It is to be intimately joined to, interconnected with, abiding in the Father, the Spirit and the Son. So get this idea of it just being a really, really long time out of your head. This is an utterly different mode of existence. Look at this. This is John writing his first epistle. This is how he opens John chapter 1. I refer to the Word, capital W, Christ. I refer to the Word, who is and who imparts life. Christ is life. Indeed, this life has manifested himself. We ourselves have seen and testify and proclaim that eternal life, capital E, capital L, which was with the Father and has manifested himself. To you we proclaim what we have seen and heard, that you may share our treasure with us. That treasure is union with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. I write this to you that we may have joy in the fullest measure. Eternal life 
Life in the age is union with life itself. Union with the Father in the Son. This is what it is to know, to participate in, to be in relationship with, to be bonded to, to abide within the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And so to not know him then is to be disconnected from life. To not know him, in other words, is to be dead. This is how Paul understands it. He says, we were dead in our sins, dead in our disbelief, dead in our rejection of God's Son. Now, I can't stand here and, and tell you definitively about what the process is after death. We know there is a resurrection. We know there are dire consequences in the age for those who reject God's Son. We also know that Jesus has the final word. But the specifics of this all seem deliberately opaque in Scripture. I would say be wary of anybody who claims that they've got all of that decoded. The imagery around such things, and particularly in Revelation, it is so culturally nuanced and contextual. It is so metaphorical that it is a massive stretch to think that we've got that understood in any definitive way. What we do understand is this. What Jesus himself says in John 5. He says, I tell you the truth. Truly, truly, he says, those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life, have life in the age. They will never be condemned for their sins. They have already passed from death to life. They have already become sharers, become participants, become co-lovers in this perfect and eternal union. And so while there's so much that we can't and don't and probably shouldn't understand, we can be confident of this. The Son has authority to give life to give life in the age to everyone in full accordance with his Father's command and his command is eternal life. And because of this, we can share the treasure. We can have joy in the fullest measure. Joy because he has accomplished the work and he hasn't even been to the cross yet. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The Son has accomplished the work, this work of binding all creation to the Father within himself so that we would participate in the reciprocal glory of the triune life, both dimly now and brightly in the age to come. And perhaps you just thought that he was copying some punishment for your sin so that you could be one of, one of those lucky ones who hop about on a cloud for a really long time. Our story is much, much better than that. George Maloney, again, he writes, he says, This truly is already eternal life. The glorification of the Father and the Son and ourselves as we all participate more and more in the Trinity's very own life and love. All this is the work 
the Father gave to his Son, Jesus Christ, our revealer, our saviour. So lift up your eyes, like your brother Jesus, with whom you have become one. Lift up your eyes. See the goodness, see the expansiveness of what it is that he has already accomplished. The hour has come. Jesus has been given authority to give life in the age to all who have been entrusted to him and you have been entrusted to him. There's nothing to do with what you've done or haven't done. Rather, it has everything to do with what he has already accomplished. Jesus has finished the work given to him. And in full obedience with the Father's command, that finished work is life. And so just like in every other week in this series in John, the question remains, do you believe? Maybe the better question today is, do you know him yet let me pray and as I pray I'm going to close our service this morning Father God we thank you that your commandment is life that you are light and in you there is no darkness Father, we thank you that you exist within yourself from all eternity as perfect light and life and love. And we thank you that this has been your plan for us since before creation. And although we cannot begin to get our hearts and minds around it, we believe you when you say, Lord Jesus, that you have accomplished the work to bring us into that same glory. We ask that would you allow us to glimpse that now? Would you allow us to show that now? Would you allow us to be a light on a hill now? To be outposts of your glory in this place as we look forward to that day, to the fullness of the age where we are fully bound into your perfect and eternal triune life of love. Help us to get our hearts around it, please, God, in some little way. Help us to encourage one another to press into the expansiveness of it all. By your spirit, would you reveal the truth of it, Lord, we pray. And so, Father, now as we, as we head into a brand new week, Lord, in the, in the name of your Son and by the power of your spirit within us, we commit ourselves to you. We commit our households to you again this week. And we ask that by your spirit that you would be our guide, that you would be our protector, that you would be our provider and our teacher and our healer. Lord, would you go before us this week, go before us in everywhere that we go, everything that we do, everything that we think and feel and say and choose. Would you make our paths straight Conform us to the image of your son. And would you send us from this place today on your mission in, in this world? We ask it all in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, be blessed. If you want to talk about any of that, if you, if you want to have a conversation where you would be introduced to the author of life, then I would love to have that conversation with you today.